Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another all-new X's for Show, your premier media response show. I'm Nico, and you can catch me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I am TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at TK Elemental. I got a new name. Woo! I stayed the same. You can find me over on the socials it's Kev, at Kev O'Reilly. That's K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. And we have a uh, comic extravaganza in store for you. I am so excited. Now, a couple of, like, I guess like last year now, we uh, took a look at the complete works of the MC2 line, which was essentially Tom DeFalco and Ron Mars and Ron Friends working to create a real-to-life-esque aging situation for the uh, Marvel Universe as we knew it. And now we find ourselves in a really cool position where, uh, you know, thanks to Spider-Verse's success, we have a ton of things we can be taking a look at and further exploring. And we're going to be diving into one of the most legendary runs of Spider content ever, and that's the JMS run of Amazing Spider-Man. And I cannot wait to tear into this thing. It's one of my favorites of all time. I know, TK, it's a little newer for you. Uh, it is a little newer for me, but we did start cracking into it when we were uh, doing MC2 because we were kind of playing around seeing what our next coverage would be. And this was high up on the list. We started to do some prep work for it. So it is one that I have a little bit more familiarity with, uh, which has helped to inform my all of my spider verse knowledge as well um so you know it's now it feels a little more like home this like third or fourth time around that i'm reading some of these issues i love that it, you know it's one of my favorite marvel runs ever one of my favorite spider-man runs for sure uh kevo now i know you're not like the most spidery spider person but you know when i said to you by the way spider-man's magical i was like oh sure yeah, you know, there is uh, there's so much to Spider-Man, which is a huge part of why I'm not quite as spidery, because it's almost too much for me at times, but it's certainly fascinating to learn about. I know that we just went through that whole Dark Web saga earlier this year, and so that was a really fascinating spin, and I know uh, JMS ASM is something you've talked about a lot, a lot. So I'm really excited to learn the nuts and bolts and what it is that drew you and draws you to this run of Spidey. And, you know, it's in uh, it's so in what something TK said earlier today, uh, very much, you know, I'm so glad that my influence on people has brought people to the JMS ASM run. But uh, one of the things TK said is that, like, you can literally still see this run in every page of spider-man right now like everybody's still reacting to this it is the new x-men of spider bites yeah um and, and right down to the fact that you know i would not describe uh j michael straczynski as a grant morrison type nor would i describe grant morrison as a j michael straczynski type but let me be really clear i really want to see grant morrison's murder she wrote <laughs> But, you know, they are both iconic figures that work in sci-fi fantasy media, not just comic books. Uh, you know, they both have done treatments and work for television and film, you know, novelizations, video games, comic books. They very much understand the multimedia nature of a lot of these stories that we tell. Uh Frank Quitely, who drew Grant Morrison's new X-Men, 
is to me the next guy I think of after John Romita Jr. for having a style that I'm obsessed with that kind of I also know freaks people out sometimes. And it's that really sexy, ugly we love. Yes. Uh, you know, even somebody like Bacalo, who has a really recognizable style, it's just a little bit more uh, kawaii, a little rounder, such that mm -hmm. even though it's so distinct, you don't put him necessarily in that same camp. Uh, but yeah, Beautiful Ugly is a great way to describe it. And these runs are both coming out in the early 2000s. They both have one of the infamous Nuff Said issues. Um, that were created without any uh, words, uh, you know, just just images. So, and 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 then both are these defining works that, for the next twenty, starting to bleed into thirty years, uh, people are building off was off of what was built here. The seeds that are planted are still growing, and we still kind of are expecting people to. Uh, pick up the ball from right about this line. Well, and to mention picking up the ball from right about this line, we're talking about a run that began like way back in 2001, but the effects of J. Michael Straczynski's work haven't gone anywhere. If you take a look at uh, the upcoming SDCC panels, actually J. Michael Straczynski's work is going to be featured there as it was just announced that he is going to be taking over Captain America so, you know, it's also of note that, well, it's really cool that on Friday there's going to be a panel featuring JMS. There's only a total of seven Marvel panel panels for Marvel Comics at this SDCC. And I think that has to do a little bit with, like, the changing tide of things. Why mm. are you going to go bonkers? Like, why are you going to go full Bianca Del Rio over SDCC with your Disney when you've got the D23 convention, just like a hot yep. 10 seconds away. I am starting to have some feelings about SDCC and the Comic Cons overall in terms of, you know, I'm really not trying to sound like a, a party pooper um, or to rain on anybody's parade. Uh, I still love my books. I really swear I still do. The stuff I love that makes me happy still makes me happy. I'm just increasingly immune to the hype. And I'm noticing it only insofar as, even as an adult with some cynicism, uh, there was a lot of hype that I was extremely excited for uh, as little as three years ago. And now I'm just starting to notice uh, a lot of repeated themes that uh, I can't really find myself getting super psyched about. I feel like you can actually just take the text of the next big thing panel each year and just swap out, you know, new name, new name. And that's, of course, not a strike against the name. It's sort of a strike against the engine, right? The creators are doing their best work, but like the engine is clearly getting a little dry here. And we're seeing the same iterations of the same things each year. I'm at least glad that if we're going to keep seeing iterations, it includes things like Women of Marvel, which is so necessary um, in a world where Captain Marvel is still getting review bombed. You know, we need to see uh, we need to see these Women of Marvel panels, uh, you know, though it's of note that I would be lying if I didn't say I was the most excited about this uh, JMS panel. 
This is a you know one of my favorites coming home to roost, and it's a pretty good cover for Captain America number one. Yeah, after this amazing uh, Punisher run uh, with Jesus says being such a huge part of it, it's pretty exciting to see uh, him on some artwork for a character that's kind of the polar opposite of Punisher in a lot of ways. Oh, so much. Uh, and to see somebody like J. Michael Straczynski, who, you know, Aaron, Jason Aaron is another person that's really in this camp of great sprawling writers that can, you know, get into really big epic sci-fi and fantasy. Um, so, you know, thinking of Jason Aaron in a similar camp as somebody like J. Michael Straczynski and J. Michael Straczynski taking over for... Uh, well, not for Aaron, but uh, for a run that is iconic in the same way that the Punisher run was. Uh, I'm excited. And now, one of my favorite things, Kevo, is that you're going to be able to read this run. And let me tell you a little bit why. <laughs> and it came up between TK and I, and it's exactly the best way to lead into our, our Spider-Man coverage starting up. Uh, so, J. Michael Straczynski is coming in after this big crossover cap era where there's two cap books. It's like Sentinel of Liberty and Sentinel of Truth. And it's all about justice and uh, really good run. Really excited for all the creators. And it just came to a close. And TK was like, do you think we should go and read some of it? And I was like, uh, no, because I don't think J. Michael Straczynski read any of it. I wouldn't worry about it so much. And then sure enough, they're like, a whole new direction for Cap starts as he time travels through all of J. Michael Straczynski's favorite Cap stories. I mean, good work if you can get it. But True. like, how do you get away with something like that? Yeah, I just want to rewrite all my favorite stories. And people are like, good, do well, it. I'm ready to buy every issue, so it works. Yeah, as long as it's good, that's really all that matters. As long as he picks good stories, which I'm sure he will. Oh yeah, and I mean, and probably... Strz... go ahead. Oh no, I was gonna say it's probably like you know that phraseology is probably like eras. He's probably doing like moments in his yeah. favorite runs. And J. Michael Straczynski is one of those people that I think you just get excited when you see the name. Um, he's he's not somebody that I necessarily want to see on everything, mm. um, but Spider-Man, Captain America, these are phenomenal lanes for a guy like this. And, you know, as I have come to love a writer like Tom DeFalco, uh, who is an old white guy who I think has a really phenomenal understanding of uh, the fundamentals of superheroics. Um, I don't necessarily want old white men to write everything and I would like uh, young queer women of color to be able to write Captain America. I don't, I don't want to hold anybody back from any particular run. Um, but when I see somebody like J. Michael Straczynski writing something like Captain America, I'm excited about it because I know he's a great writer and I know he'll get the character a lot. And at the same time, I'm pleased that, like, um, you know, Storm's book is not being written by J. Michael Straczynski. Uh, and that that's something I can hope that a black woman gets to be in charge of. Yeah. And 
you know, I want to talk for a minute about this notion of why a guy like a JMS would get you excited. Um, almost every one of my favorite reinventions in Marvel history is JMS. I don't know what it is. Uh, his Squadron Supreme is the best Squadron Supreme. His reinvention of all of the Golden Age characters in the 12 is one of the best things Marvel produced in that era. Um, you know, his Thor is one of my favorite things I ever read. But then there's tons of J. Michael Straczynski that leaves me kind of dry and I have no real relationship with it. And part of that is because when J. Michael Straczynski comes onto your book, he's going to take such a big swing. It is only going to be big swings. Big swings only. And every big swing he takes is about deforming your understanding of the nature of the of the nature of the storytelling. You know, when I think about Neil Gaiman, and that's um, Mister uh, that's Mister Sandman to people who don't always realize that Neil Gaiman really did get his start in comics. He's not just like a superhero in in literaria, but like he really was the guy who was like, I think that Alan Moore could be made marketable. And like everybody was like, okay, we will someday reward you with an empire. And you know, Neil Gaiman takes big swings, and he they they connect with people's spirit in a way. Now, I don't think that JMS's big swings really connect with spirit in the same way, but I do believe they connect with identity, and that's where his Spider Man is my favorite Spider Run of all time. I see what you mean. I'm not going to delve too much into it right in this moment because we're going to talk a lot more about this run. Um, but one of the things we talked about, one of the ways I described it is it is elegant and iconic. It is simple and just, I mean, it's, it is unlike... Um, daredevil man without fear and x-men grand design in that this is actually just completely in continuity with everything else mm -hmm. but uh what it does that those books also did is just kind of start at a at a point in time that's much closer to the present day and sort of just give you the baseline to work off of this is who peter parker is this is what he does these are his relationships uh and i think that's so important to do and we give creators and offices the kind of give me of something like a grand design or a man without fear in terms of saying like yeah this is kind of out of continuity but we'll kind of say everything starts after this or this is your version of everything starts after this but even more impressive when somebody can kind of just be like no this is actually just tuesday but everything starts after this tuesday yeah you know Kevo, when I think about landmark runs that I try to get you in on, this is one that hopefully someday when you have unlimited time, you might like thumb through if for no other reason. The amount of Peter Parker's ass is right. a glorious gift. And Ezekiel is straight daddy. I mean, Ezekiel is straight daddy. And ugh. anyway, so as we prepare to dive into my favorite run of Spider-Man, which, you know, you're mostly a, a, a passenger do you have any thoughts as you enter the mystic realm and the mystic era of Spider-Man? Head empty, full of webs. Just uh, excited to find out what it is about this run that is so interesting, other than the initials being so fun to say. Here's oh. actually another question, though, for you. Were you a Babylon 5 kid? No. 
No, but you were a Farscape kid. Yes. That's very funny. Okay. Yeah, you know, Farscape uh, is like Babylon 7. I my journey, is Babylon a lot. my journey to Farscape was weird because I wasn't technically a Farscape kid. I was a Farscape adult. I discovered right. it through the series finale miniseries. And right. so I'm, I'm always weird, which is why weird runs and things like this Captain America is good for people like me because, you know... You're gonna you're gonna hook someone with it. So now, speaking of hooking, um, I need to start this saga of Amazing Spider-Man by J. Michael Straczynski by just sort of saying Spider-Man was at a creative dearth. Mm. Not that the writers were doing a bad job, but everything had become this like eye roll about the nature of, um, I guess, for lack of a nicer way to put it the cyclical properties of spider storytelling where they really couldn't move past where they had been locked in for so long. You know, when I see this cover, it's obviously just a bunch of bad guys webbed together, but there's a deeper read. Spider-Man is crawling on an earth created of webbing and it's of his own design. He is stuck with these muggers and these, these criminal elements or so we assume because this is the world he has built for himself. It is the world that he has strung together. And the violence, the weapons, are trapped inside of this web with him. And then to the side, to the bottom, on the bottom right, is this spider. This spider that comes to mean something so much more. We've accepted the spider as random chance that Peter was always meant to be important. But no, the spider is destiny that Peter was always meant to be important. And this idea that Peter is crawling around an earth web of his own design as the spider sits in the corner in a part that is just barely connected by a strand. And that's the defining element of this run. J. Michael Straczynski sought to take an idea that existed in strands. How could Spider-Man be this important and it all be a random happenstance? And he takes and makes it something religious, which for so many of us, for so many of us, comics become religious. And like, I know that my personal belief system involves some form of the Phoenix, some idea that we are all forever and that we can all be together in this bigger mind. And I don't know how much of that is like, you know, like the hive mind, earth spirit being influencing, you know, and how much of that is Phoenix. But from day one, when I was a fucking kid, this cover changed me day one. And it didn't do the same for me, uh, but our coverage of what it means to be the daughter of Spider-Man and where that led us into understanding what it means to be a spider person and the idea of totemic spider personedom and how that spun out of concepts that came from this book and how those can be applied to kind of just a more broader idea of archetypes uh, that play into our understanding of the world, uh, be it, you know, spiritual, religious, or entirely, you know, atheistic and non-denominational. Archetypes are always really important. And this series is where spiderdom goes from being, as you mentioned, this kind of random act of chance that this, this act of God, this irradiated spider would bite this guy and the science of it all the science would, <laughs> would mean that now he has superpowers to 
no, there's actually a greater thing going on here. And it right at this early point, it's not even so interested in whether or not that's mystical or divine, but really it's just interested in showing Peter that it is, if nothing else, archetypal. And he has to think about that as he travels through the world as the archetype of the Spider-Man. And it's this first arc in its entirety, I think it's issues 30 through 35, that really explore the notion of what is Spider-Man because the first thing that you need to consider about this arc... Oh, terrific. It is 30 through 35. Kev is the best producer in the world. Uh, the first thing I want to say is the title barring. I loved this era of title barring. I loved this style of corner boxing. There was something luscious. There was something over-entitled about the amount of room they felt confident giving to Spider-Man in the corner of his own book. And I just... I don't know. This era of Spider-Man has always really been a, a powerful thing for me. And when I look at this run, this first arc, there is no, uh, let's see, there's no buddy named Osborne. Mary Jane is a shadow that haunts Peter romantically. Um, you know, there is a, a real powerful sense of loss of identity of who Peter had become in a universe of supporting characters and a real focus on who Peter is as a man. And speaking of Peter as a man, God damned if, okay, first of all, John Romita Jr. If you've ever seen the guy is the Hulk in the first place. The guy is an actual tank. Number one, number two, the hams he puts on Spider-Man up there literally make me gayer. Yeah, he is not afraid of shying away from uh, a, you know, what is just a sexy Peter. Like, it's, it, this is not the, um, ain't a boy. Liefeldian, you are so mutatedly jacked. It's not even sexy. It is very uh, <laughs> concerning at best. Just odd, you know, it's muscles that can't possibly exist. Um, and you know, that's fine. That is Rob Liefeld's over-exaggerated style. We've, we've pointed out why it's silly, but you know, over-exaggerated is fine for comics. Before I go uh, one more second, I just need to correct myself. This covers are by J. Scott Campbell. Um. They match the interiors by Ramita, but just need right. to say that before I forgot. Um, but the way Peter is drawn throughout this, it's just as a really fit very sexy guy uh and you know frankly so is ezekiel sims uh a really really handsome daddy of a man oh my god uh, he makes no sense i i am is that not this guy Yes. yes, and I'm not a feet person, feet. Yeah. but uh, it does feel like Ramita is particularly invested in that aspect of the situation, and uh, I think we're all better for it. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's always really interesting to me. This is 2002. This is John Ramita Jr. There's nobody involved who is really invested in a queer lens on Peter Parker. And yet there does seem to be some investment in 
a an idea that Peter is sexy. Uh, and that despite the fact that mostly heterosexual men will be reading this book, that it's okay to draw Peter sexy and to kind of, like, assert that. And the sexiness is actually a necessary part of this era of Peter Parker. One of the big things about this era of Spider-Man is it's not just that Peter's an adult. Peter's an adult with adult concerns. Peter has a job. He wants to get some. He misses his wife. Peter is so much more than a boy in this run. And it's so significant that when we think about that, when we think about what that means for a character like Peter Parker, that we consider that this was a character that was forced into repeated roles. We were forced to have his child taken from him because we couldn't identify with an adult Peter Parker who could have a child. And I think in some ways it's because the 80s weren't sexy the way the 2000s are. And if you're telling me I can see Ricky Schroeder uh, in Silver Spoons or I can see Ricky Schroeder on NYPD Blue, you know I want that butt shot. And um, speaking of that butt shot, I just need to comment on what is possibly one of the top 10 most famous images of Spider-Man ever. And it is in my top three ever. I, I don't even know what to say about the colors on this. I think these might be the finest colors on any comic page ever. I, I, my, I, I get, like, I remember being like seriously 15 years old and like not even knowing what to say at looking at this and just being so stunned. And it's such a beautiful, famous piece that it was used as the only advertisement. Like it would literally just say JMS, JRJR. ASM and that was like an advertisement they ran on this in tons of books because you didn't need to say more yeah and uh I just I genuinely find this an, a really moving image and uh it just sets such a good tone for the run yeah I mean this really is the nuff said era in so many ways and I do think a lot of that is about paring down places where things have gotten overly complex great point and using that as a springboard to make things more complex because the fact of the matter is we see this in X-Men as well. You know, we really pair the team down to, you know, the, the five that are the central members of the X-Men and new X-Men. And the mission is just we run the school. But then from there, it's much more complicated. Uh, and here, you know, we pair the people in Peter's life down to basically no one. Uh, and we start to introduce them slowly. You know, first Aunt May comes back and then Mary Jane comes back into his life. But again, as you said, there's no Osbournes. Um, but in doing that, we then start to introduce this idea of totemic spider personhood. And we introduce you know, characters like Ezekiel Sims and Morlin. And it is more complicated, but the way we get to more complicated is by simplifying a lot. And it's about simplifying the iconography, imagery, the basics yeah. of what makes the character who the character is. And then we go from there. And, you know, this first issue plays on color so much. 
It really uses the dark danks of night for blue, and it uses really bright warms to bring the day in, so that once Ezekiel starts literally gripping the walls with his feet, and we have no idea who the fuck Ezekiel is, there's nothing clear about this character at first, and he just flat out says, you know, it's so weird that you never once said to yourself, was it just a radioactive spider, or was there something else? How have you not caught that you're a scientist who's applied no science to being Spider-Man? And it's just this moment where it's like, you know, I think about the moment that made me say comics are greater than I had ever dreamt of. And it's Grant Morrison and I'm holding new X-Men. And it's that moment where they say, why do you think the X in Weapon X is a letter? It's a Roman numeral. You're not Weapon X. You're Weapon 10, buddy. And he's just like, what? Yeah, you know what? Come to think of it, I don't think Hulk got bit by a radioactive angry person. I don't think, you know, that Iron Man got bit by a radioactive toaster. I don't think radiation just gives you superpowers. So that question being asked by this person who had never existed before in Spider-Man, he just comes in and unearths this truth. Sort of the same way Cassandra Nova comes in and just kills all the mutants. But the thing that this issue provides that I think is also worth noting is in creating Ezekiel, who you might think is going to be super important, but heads up, he is criminally underutilized to even this day. Criminally. Um, you get the world's gayest cannibal vampire? Um, to go back to Ezekiel first. So, I mean, first of all, yeah, anything to not talk about Moreland. I understand yeah, the, the question of why have you not employed the scientific method seems to be almost an indictment of every single writer, writer. that came before. Yes. Like, why, why did you not guy? why did you guys not do a little more than this? Of course, in the 1960s, when the public did not understand radiation, uh, and we had things like Godzilla, uh, you know, the idea that radiation was, you know, was equivalent to magic made total sense, but it's been decades since and we now we now know for sure that all radiation does is give you cancer and mutate your genetics. Uh, so why did nobody press on that a little bit more? Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> I wrote murder, she wrote. Get out of my way. Angela Lansbury couldn't handle me and neither can Peter Parker. Um, that Mrs. Lovett mystery solving pussy is just too much for us to try and keep in one hand. You know what I mean? And I agree with you that Ezekiel Sims is criminally underused, but I also really appreciate that I feel like uh, Straczynski knew he had immediately gold and didn't want to turn this character into a crutch. Uh, but what you see right off the bat is that Peter is somebody who has needed mentors. And has deserved them and has deserved somebody to sort of look after and care for him a little bit. And what I love is that while it could be this older, wealthy man who could kind of be a stand-in for Uncle Ben, and he is, and it's great, and he does help Peter, 
uh, he's put aside so that May can come in and fill that role because she actually did that work and raised this young man and they've never quite had <laughs> hello to both of us hello uh, <laughs> they've never quite had the come to Jesus moment because there's been no honesty between them so really while Ezekiel is a phenomenal person to be in Peter's life and to help be a mentor it's May that he needs to have that reckoning with and they do get it and that's really beautiful um but yeah i mean just these elements that you know straczynski clearly knew he had on his hands and knew how to work with uh you know what honestly including morland and you know when i think about the role aunt may plays here the thing that it gives me is that she um she serves a unique role here one of the things that Aunt May has always done is Aunt May has played into a category of character that's on the outside looking in. The redefining of her context in this run as somebody who is a major player in Spider-Man's life, not Peter Parker's life. But in this run, she becomes a major player in Spider-Man's life. And I think that understanding is so important. Because that's what this story is really about. It's about removing the Spider-Man and Peter Parker characters as two separate things and refocusing Peter Parker and Spider-Man as one thing, but then like the, the symbolic power of the spider as another. And, you know, just to kind of keep us moving through the issues, because yeah. we're, we're, we're not flying. Uh, one of the things I love about the second issue right away is the amount of conversation between Aunt May and Peter is so significant because it establishes this idea that the relationship between the two of them is still going to be central, even though it clearly cuts away from it. It stops being a central focus of the story. It stops being a concern pretty quickly. This arc is not about Aunt May, even though she is sort of a narrative focus. This arc is about the fact that Spider-Man is so fucking busy fighting octopus people and venom people and snake people that he's never wondered did my spider have enemies that's what he's finding out here he's discovering he's inherited a power through magic and that that power comes with nemeses which is a fascinating thing when you think about the role Miles is playing now. Now that they've decided that Peter has too many nemeses and they need to start giving them away and they gave the serial killer to Miles, Miles taking on Carnage is a really interesting thing because it's like he's inherited Carnage as his bad guy. So um, I think the thing that it leads me to wonder about is how many writers were able to do so much writing about Spider-Man Without addressing the spider. Like, this really is the first The Spider story. And the way they have Spider-Man begin, uh, I, you know, I don't want to... This run gets oddly political for its era. Um, Spider-Man foils a school shooting in the first in the second issue. And then ultimately begins working at the school. And the, the shooter was a bullied kid. And, you know, it makes Peter realize that he's not saving enough kids. Which, I don't know, like, I, as a guy who works in education and feels like it's my job to save every kid I've ever taught in my entire life, that is the realest moment 
I have ever seen in fiction education. Um, really gripping and gutting. My job is to save every one of these kids like I am a superhero. And to see Peter feel that way made me feel very alive. But I will say uh, what got a little rough was the monologue about how these kids today are aren't innocent like our kids were they don't they don't get to be kids and it's just one of those things where it's like yeah if you were not an abused poor child uh then yeah there everybody was innocent and had fun but you know just because you can see that the system and the world is failing more children doesn't mean that the children that you grew up with got to have a childhood it means that you got to have one uh, and that was one of few things, you know, like as much as I love Straczynski in the same way that I love DeFalco, but he makes some mistakes. <laughs> that, that was one of those moments where I was just like, oh, you maybe didn't realize that like, uh, childhood has always been horrible for some people and innocence gets thrown out the window at the age of five, at the age of two. It doesn't matter. Some people don't get to have a childhood. Dexter didn't get to have a childhood. Those murders started early and often. Um, and, you know, thinking that because you had one, that meant that the world was better is just a silly thing to write, uh, especially when you're so it's dangerous. Yeah, it's dangerous. It's when you're so clearly a brilliant writer to miss that point and to not check that is a little uh, unfortunate. You know, if I could go back and pull something out, it would probably be that. Um the school shooting oh man i mean this is when we started to be concerned about that so i get where it comes from but oh gosh i i just want to tell these people they have no idea the horrors that they're in store for and maybe kind of being this cavalier about it is not the not the way to go and I think the thing that like makes it so complicated and this is something you and I were talking about um, in the car. I, so, you know, the thing that makes Spider-Verse powerful is that Spider-Verse is incredible. This, uh, in, sorry, uh, across the Spider-Verse yeah. that makes it so powerful is despite its many flaws, it's an excellent, brilliant film with a vision for what character community can be because it's about character community. It's about establishing a network of everybody sees themselves in many forms. And, um, when I think about that, I think about the fact that, uh, you know, Gwen is a is a feminist nightmare. She is so obsessed with the boy. I don't love some of the optics of there is an evil black version of Miles uh, who they, they very much like make him very aggressively, you know, uh, kind of stereotypical in a lot of ways. He is a street criminal. <laughs> yeah. And like they don't make him the upstanding, fine young man he is whose color is a, an element of his defining strength. Or they don't make him a Robin Hood, you know, yeah. someone who is technically committing crimes, but you know that they are crimes against an unjust system. Exactly. He's literally just like, I'm going to sell drugs for money. And it, it's gut-wrenching, and I understand the, the value of it, but, like, I also find it just hard to see because Miles has so been the exception of those concepts that, you know, when we think about that sense of character community and that way that we are 
in love with the work despite its problems, right? Like despite those things, so many of the beautiful things they showcase about Miles eat away at that concern. So whenever there is something like the unfortunate representation of school shootings in the 31st issue, issue 32, where Ezekiel is like, didn't you ever notice that basically symbols fight symbols like Captain America fights the Red Skull and mutants fight mutants? And you're an animal person, so bigger animals keep trying to eat you. But the way you defeat them is you capture them in your web. You got your powers from a magical creature, and you're not ever noticing that animal creatures only attack you? And he's sort of like, oh, uh, I have to thwip. And that's, um, thwip over there. And so that's kind of the thing about this run that I love more than anything. This run, oh man, the the person that taught me to be a Spider-Man fan, the guy who uh, learned me how to thwip, uh, just said into the chat, street criminal, or is he a vigilante in his universe because there's no Spider-Man and across the Spider-Verse? Uh, big shout out to Taron and Gleema, uh, slash Taron Enigma. Um, you know, uh, I really definitely don't think he's a vigilante, but <laughs> I really do get your point. <laughs> um, so, okay, real quick. And uh, I, I just want to, I want to get there with it. Yeah. Kevo, I know you're in the room. So if you have any opinion, I would love for you to weigh in. I want to sure. do, I want to do a group vote real quick. How do you feel about finding out that the spider was always magic? I literally think it is the only thing that makes sense. You cannot remove the magic spider for me ever again. It would literally ruin Spider-Man. I want to I want to push back on that ever so slightly and say that it's not Ezekiel in this book is not even saying it's magic. That is fair. He's saying there is more going on here than you got bit by a radioactive spider. <laughs> Yeah. And through science, through the <laughs> laws through the laws of nature as we know them, you got spider powers. He is pointing to a much more complex idea of totemology, symbology, divinity, uh, and saying, you're part of that. And then pulling back. Um so I just I want to say that and say that I do love that because that's the whole point of comics. Comics yes. are all about that symbology and that likeness to divinity. Uh, and while the comics that we got in the 60s uh, re made references re reference to ideas that sounded scientific. <laughs> We mostly came to all put into common discourse that, of course, there was no science behind them, really. But that that symbology became more important over time. And our desire to blend fiction and nonfiction and to bleed the lines for all of us became so strong that it becomes necessary to do things like this. And something I love about this concept and introducing it is whether you love it or hate it, it doesn't really do much to change either 
the character at his core mm-hmm. or even the character origin really it is still the i got bit by a radioactive spider parentheses now and it's wacky (laughs) and just and it's wacky and it's something that we can still explore and expand on and evolve uh it it reminds me a lot of ways of the doctor who revelation of the timeless child where i feel like it added a ton to the character and what the character's potential and backstory is but it doesn't super extremely change what you've read so far and it doesn't super extremely change what the pop culture concept of spider-man is there's more so much more the same way that there's so much more to a lot of these characters than a lot of people think there is on the surface but it's really mostly just streamlining it uh cleaning it up for what we know better about the modern era and trying to keep kids from just sitting on microwaves to get superpowers guys the number of times i tried to microwave my balls to give myself a super dick eight (laughs) (laughs) now i need to touch on something in this in this big conversation because one of my all-time favorite things in the history of the Marvel Universe is introduced in issue 32. I mean, I just think issue 32 is one of the finest books of all time. Um, and in it, Ezekiel says, Just as there are totemistic forces, there are forces that feed on them. And the inheritors over their centuries. People like you. Only a few of them still walk the earth. Really good pros. Lots of they hunt you. They eat you. Um... I know you felt him. I felt something wrong. And then Moreland's dialogue is, hmm, I don't know. Do you think this makes my butt look fat? Anyone who doesn't understand how JMS is an actual master of comedic reveal, I just, like, I don't know. Maybe it's too old school. Maybe it's vaudevillian, and that's what I love about it. But there is a slapstick to the way this man understands villain and humor And, like, what I love about that line is if Aunt May saw a fight between Spider-Man and Moreland where she heard him say that, she would say, and yes, those pants make your ass look fat. Like, it's a phrase that exists in JMS's Spider-Man. It's a tone that fits in JMS's Spider-Man. And I just think it's great. I just think he's a charming villain. Yeah, um, he's he is a very simple villain, and especially now, he's going to go on to get less charming and less simple, but he really just is a, a predator that wants to, you know, he's like Galactus, he just wants he's to He's just eat. hungry. He's just hungry. Uh, and you know, he says repeatedly, this isn't personal, it's not personal. I'm just hungry. Um, but I am just going to kill you and no, I'm not going to stop. I, I feel a little bit bad cause I can see you're a nice guy, but I don't, <laughs> I don't care. I uh, so much. and it is funny. Like it is, it is funny. It's scary. Terrifying. Uh, He's a person with a personality. He's somebody who does wonder if his butt looks fat. Uh, But he doesn't care when he is trying to eat. And he has no sympathy. 
none of this stuff is going to stop him and he doesn't really talk that much no he is goaded into talking more and it's like i'm not gonna keep talking because that's gonna distract me from killing you uh and he's you know that is the writer saying i'm gonna break the rules of comic convention where if i can write my main villain monologuing that's going to mean that somebody can distract my villain and save the day. But that's stupid. And somebody who has drive is not going to succumb to that. My villain that I've written here has that drive. And so he can't be distracted. Nope. So when we get to that moment where Spider-Man is quipping, he's not going to quip back. But that doesn't mean he's not funny like all comic villains can be. Here's the quip. 10 pages earlier where it does not matter for the plot. And that's impressive writing. The thing that gets me the most is when somebody says, I have a MacGuffin and the MacGuffin's always been hiding in your story. You've had the MacGuffin the whole time. You just never noticed it. It goes one of two ways. I either find you cloying or I'm impressed. Yeah. That they say that the radiation is the X factor from day one. Issue one, they, the first dialogue about radiation is that it's the unique thing here. Ezekiel feels that because Moreland has already found Peter, it's too late. And it's so fascinating because Moreland is this unbelievable character that represents the... So, okay, I'm about to jump some tracks here a little bit. Sure. This is the gayest Spider-Man run ever. And TK, you're the one who points it out, and I would really love for you to to kind of say some of it. But it, it, and I promise, it comes back to this issue. Yeah. It originated from me talking about how Aunt May, when she openly tells Peter, "I know you're Spider-Man," she says things like, "I never questioned the blood in your briefs. What is wrong with me?" And she's like, "I guess I just thought you were gay." Like that you had so many secrets and you were always changing your clothes secretly and you always smelled like places I didn't recognize that I go with you. And like, there's a lot here. And it's down to this this issue where he defeats Ezekiel with his blood poison is called coming out. Yeah, um, you know, this run reminds me and this particular set of stories reminds me a lot of Buffy, uh, which yes. is appropriate because, you know, J. Michael Straczynski, a television contemporary of Joss Whedon. And Joss uh, Whedon wasn't discussing it publicly yet. He was right. still keeping that shit under his very thin hair. Right. So keep Remind in mind. Remind me of the year on this? 2002. Oh, okay. right. Yeah. 2002. Okay. Yep. Uh, so, you know, right around this time, Glory is having some moments where she will be distracted. You just for... blew my mind, man. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, and Buffy is learning at the end of season four and into season five that she is essentially part of a, a symbology and a, and a line. Tema. Oh, yeah. my God, you're blowing my mind on air. Yeah. Very shamanistic as well on Buffy. Yep. And she's got this villain that is reflective of her uh, that, you know, when it, you really want her to be scary, she stops wow. quipping and she will not be deterred. And these two are coming up with these ideas in parallel. Nobody's stealing from the other person. It's not possible to produce their two media uh, and be stealing yeah. from each other. So that's not what I'm suggesting for anybody. Who... No, they're two of the greats who studied all the same greats. That's, right. you know, precisely. Um, but 
what they also, as two wow. greats, also saw is that superherodom parallels the homosexual experience in a lot of ways. Joss got to it earlier in at the end of season two of Buffy, where she finally comes out to Joyce, and Joss deals with different stuff. Joyce isn't surprised uh, that she never noticed. She is, she, what she really does is the, if you're going to do this, don't come home again. Yeah. Um, and what may does is the i can't believe what what was right in front of me this whole time and i clearly didn't notice and it's amazing what we can hide from each other when we simply do not talk uh you did not tell me but i also did not talk to you when i could see that these things were coming up and, and did i not want to see it which is something joyce never really brought up right yeah um and so with with this conversation with May, we really kind of established that there is this parallel between the homosexual experience and the superhero experience. But then there's a thing that happens later that is just there to remind you that, yes, the coding is similar. And that's not to say that you should think Peter is gay, which you are certainly welcome to. And you're, many people think he's bisexual, and that's totally fine. But this is an author who has no investment in that saying, <laughs> I, I see the coding, and it is valid to say that the coding is similar. And it's when Peter is putting makeup on to disguise his bruises from Aunt May. And his and students. And his students as well, yeah. yeah. And he's in the mirror with his butt pushed out in this way that is just kind of like, hey, girl, putting so on hot. foundation. And it is very sexy. It's really, um, really, really sexy. And it's just kind of a queer-coded moment. Uh, and it's not there to say, yeah, you should start thinking of this person as someone who likes to suck dick it's there to say yeah these two experiences really do have parallels that if you're someone who likes to suck dick um or you know just any queer person whatsoever and you're seeing the parallel you are not wrong you have not dug in the wrong direction seeing this uh do with that information what you will i'm not going to be canonizing anything but the imagery is the way it is for a variety of reasons and it's okay if you see yourself in it the thing that it also really always makes me go to with the coding of spider-man as a queer character has to do with the fact that spider-man was made so available to non-heterosexual male people um and i just say people because i want to include the trans community even though spider-man has never really stood up enough by having trans spider characters. There should be trans men, there should be trans women, non-binary characters, we just don't have it yet. We will hopefully with the depth of Spider-Verse at this point. But one of the things that I immediately go to is the sort of accessible honesty that Spider-Man has that somebody like perhaps, I just to use somebody, Captain America, you might be like, he loves Bucky, but you're not like, Captain America's so gay. You're not like, I could see Captain America bending over for Batman. 
there's a lot of jokes that Spider-Man would kind of bend over for a guy like Batman, like a guy like Captain America. And that's not to say that verse guys or bottoms are automatically gayer, but that's to say that there is a certain cultural perception of how we apply the idea of homosexuality from things we pick up on as trope, regardless of whether or not they're true. And I say this as a guy who's friends with a lot of super bottom bodybuilders. So, well, and also Peter gives off bottom energy. Like it doesn't matter if it's heterosexual bottom energy, he really does you know he very obviously is the type who i have the weight on my weight of the world on my shoulders so when i go home and get in bed with you you be the boss uh and so he has a lot of people he's also just constantly scrapping and surviving see he's in bed with you there he is uh he feels like he constantly doesn't have his shit together so usually what happens is he encounters somebody who does and male man or woman whoever it is he's just very much like mommy daddy i love you uh and it's a great energy it's very funny he's very charming about it uh but it does sort of work well in addition to the coding of he's got a secret that's hidden from everybody uh you know he's he's alone in it uh he likes to dress up um oh my god saying he's alone in it there's that panel in uh 35 where he's literally they show his tears through the spider mask yeah and it's like the most like that that panel that panel has stuck with me since i'm like 17 years old you can literally see the tears behind the spider mask it's like it's hard to look at yeah so i mean so that's the what happens once we establish that Moreland's here and he's going to kill Spider-Man is Peter is alone getting the shit beat out of him by this guy for multiple issues. And he has no one. This guy will kill anybody that gets between him and Peter. Oh my God. The guy rips taxis apart. Like he Moreland did. is so strong. He's very strong. He can, you know, suck the life out of normal people. That doesn't really give him any sustenance. So he'll do it to get them out of the way and to scare Peter and to make Peter feel bad that Peter is letting people die on his behalf to stay away from Moreland. Uh, So Peter is entirely alone. Nobody can help him. And what has been established is Ezekiel offered him assistance to hide and if peter had hid when he was given that assistance like ezekiel did by coming a businessman sorry ezekiel but you're a sellout peter could have hidden and morland would never have found him but now that morland has found him he can always find him so ezekiel cannot help peter nobody can help peter peter is entirely alone and this incredibly strong force is coming to kill him this is the culmination of the personal symbology of peter parker's life not the spider stuff it is that he is always alone that even the great power that he has that he is constantly uh under duress to use can do nothing for him and that the only thing that he can do with it is keep other people alive by sacrificing himself and that's peter's personal story uh and it's heartbreaking uh that's that's what takes us to the climax and conclusion of this is just this idea that peter is entirely alone and death itself has come for him and cannot be stopped and the only way he's able to defeat morlin is he realizes that the radiation is the thing that makes him the x spider and so he doses himself with so much radiation it should kill him 
So, like, it, it's almost like the only way he can truly free the spider is to become more the thing that makes him the spider. He has so, to delve even further into his mythology. Yes. And in a way that is a perversion of his mythology. So it's almost like a person finding religion through something that is forbidden by their religion, finding God more through your gayness, almost. And his radiation poisons Moreland to death. And God, when Moreland says it was nothing personal, I was just so hungry. Holy yeah. shit! Those are his dying words! Yeah, uh, it's it's amazing. I mean, so, you know, and by the way, in between this, uh, he ostensibly kills, uh, Moreland ostensibly kills Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel has a crisis of conscience and goes to help Peter, but that help is worthless. Uh, all, <laughs> Good job, old white man. All Ezekiel will do is feed Moreland because Ezekiel has spider energy too. Which and... he got through, uh, which he says at one point, there's true spider totems. And there's false spider totems. And an inheritor can taste the difference. Yep. And all of this, you know, the, the, when we talk about this being new X-Men for Spider-Man, these little seeds and things are planted here. And this is what gets reaped in uh, across the, uh, the Spider-Verse, into the Spider-Verse for uh, um, by Dan Slott. Dan yeah. Slott takes some of these rules and does the next Morlin and the Inheritor story, which... Ten years later, and then 20 years later. And every day since... <laughs> <laughs> it's always Spider-Verse somewhere. Um, but this is the original thing that says that, you know, here's the setup for, for this next phase of Spider-Man, and we'll keep coming back to it. Um, but so Ezekiel has this crisis of conscience, and even though he has said, I, I literally cannot help you, Peter, there's nothing I can do, this guy will always find you, and he'll kill me too, and by killing me, that'll make him stronger, so he can just kill you more, it's worthless for me to help you. But then, of course, he can't let Peter be alone. He does not want Peter to die alone. What a and good so, Uncle Ben. What a good Uncle Ben, and so he goes and tries to help him, and does get killed, and thrown in the water, uh, and we finish out this fight. Peter figures out what he has to do, more radiation, you know, exactly as you said, perverting the religious iconography that creates this spider divinity, and that radiation poisons Moreland, who, again, like, this is J. Michael Straczynski saying, I was totally serious, he is not, he's not a bad guy, you know, he's, no. he really is just hungry you know he has no malice or ill will and when he is beaten he reverts to a lizard person well that the 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 imagery is i don't know what to do with and that never really comes up again which is unfortunate because but lizards eat spiders yeah i guess but you know we've had so much inheritor work and we've never seen this imagery again ever um, i've literally read every page of the inheritors yeah but you know, he does just become weak and frail and sad. And exactly as you said, I was just so hungry. So and hungry. he begs for his life because he does not, he does not have pride. He does not have anything but the hunger. Oh, and so cool. <laughs> it just, again, it's this, we've simplified and we've streamlined to the point where the villains don't even have the kind of, 
external life that somebody like Doc Connors has. Great he's got a, perspective. He's got a wife and family, and we've got to kind of judge, well, is he a bad guy because he wouldn't take care of them? Is he actually a good guy that we can sympathize with because he was just trying to do science? This guy has nothing but the hunger, and that is kind of important in its own way because we've let ourselves get so caught up in how human our villains are that Ooh. we just spend all day kind of jerking each other off about, you know, how I, how much we identify with them, which of course we should. I do it a lot. Magneto is my favorite. Magneto committed some serious war crimes. I still love the guy. But, but let like, me tell you this. I would have at 14 years old loved to have been the guy that danced with him at his bar mitzvah. Exactly. Um, but Morlin is a lot simpler than that and being a lot simpler than that makes things a lot more complicated yes uh as we delve into what all this stuff means so and i mean you, it's sorry but now can you see why literally when we got to him in spider-verse i had an anxiety attack on air yeah oh yeah oh my god this is like this is one of the greatest villains marvel's ever had in their entire 70 80 100 year canon yep. however you want to splice it he's one of the finest concepts because he gets inside you he makes you feel sick like he's like a zorn where the idea of killing him is actually a betrayal which is where spider-man isn't the one who kills morlin morlin would survive the radiation poisoning but be too weak to do anything and probably even be able to be thrown on the raft or something but morlin has a human sick he's got a run through yeah named dex uh you know Perhaps not the sweet, loving little man that someone like a black tarantula would keep, but uh, Dex, not... Dex looks so iconically 2002 street skeezer. It is just <laughs> perfect. I knew so many Dexes when I was 16 years old, and they were who sold me the Adderall. Um, it's just John Romita Jr. has been getting it perfectly for decades on decades. And, you know, Dex is just the skeeviest little dude. Uh, and he's exactly who you would get under your thrall to execute your plans when you have to hide because you're a vampire person. Uh, and when the thrall is broken, Dex does what every thrall does. Which is you kill the shit out of your evil master. Yeah. And Spider-Man has a real hard time with this. Spider-Man is like, if I ever see you again, I will fucking kill you. Get away from me. I can't believe you murdered someone. I was mad at him for being a murderer, and now I'm mad at you. Get away from me. And the reason he's really mad is because this guy stopped him from being a murderer. So Spider-Man was ready to take this responsibility in his chest and let it kill him. And this man took his bird. I can't even talk about how much I love this Peter Parker. Oh, my God. And I might even challenge that I don't know. We'll never know if Peter was ready to do it. Um, But what Dex did was take the decision away from Peter. I and love Peter that wanted this moment of having ultimate power in a situation where he had been made ultimately powerless. He had been t had every sense of power taken away from him and the tables flipped so much that if he decided I'm not going to kill Morlin, 
that would have been his power move to figure out what to do next. And he could have done something. Now, you're right. He could have taken him to the raft. He could have done anything. And Peter would have decided the destiny, would have reclaimed all of the power. He could have killed him and taken that on his shoulders as well. Dex took that away from him. And now this was just suffering for Peter for no reason. Oh, it's so good. I can't stand how good it is. Yeah. But that does bring us to the image that I believe sets this run on its unstoppable collision course with Aunt May Must Die. Heads up, the end of this series, the most famous end of any comic book arc since the Dark Phoenix saga. I will not back down on that. I will literally not back down that One More Day is the most famous ending of any Spider-Man story ever. Yeah. Maybe more famous than the death of Gwen Stacy. Oh, more people I, absolutely more famous. hate this than yeah. understand the death of Gwen Stacy. Yeah. And when Aunt May sees Spider-Man laying basically naked, wrapped in bandages, in his bed, and his costume is in tatters around him, my favorite part is the mask is screaming. Yes. The mask yeah, is literally like, oh, God, she found me. It's Van Gothian. Um, and in between this and now, I just want to mention uh, Spider-Man has gone to a building and seen a spider <laughs> and he goes to grab it and it's a toy spider that says made in Taiwan on it. And he looks at the window and it's got Ezekiel's grody feet stains on it. Uh, so we know that Ezekiel is back and, and he's looking fine as shit in a pair of purple sunglasses riding around in he, full JRJR musculature. Yeah. He's going to be looking out for Peter from so far afar that we'll hardly ever see him again. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God. But and yes, yeah. and then and then we get to this Aunt May scene, which game changer, game changer, and I can't wait to talk all about it. But yeah. first, we're gonna jump to a commercial where we're gonna take a break. We're gonna come back and talk about the hardest issue of Spider-Man to talk about ever. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man thirty-six is basically nine eleven pro-american propaganda i was but... gonna say if you are nine eleven sensitive in any capacity, uh, be it you know feeling infinite respect about the situation or feeling that it is really something difficult to discuss that makes you angry. I will warn you that we're going to have a lot of opinions here. And, and I just want to say that my uncle was in the first 25 firemen to get to the building, was trapped under the rubble for 10 hours, was saved by police officers. And I spent 20 years watching him die. And so, uh, I have a lot of real intense feelings about yeah. this subject. Um, my uncle was one of my heroes and uh, what 9-11 turned him into was not my favorite thing. And so I see 9-11 as a cultural turning point as much as a safety turning point. And the way it changed great men is an unforgettable loss. And that Spider-Man attempts to do something good with that way too soon was a disease that no comic book could avoid yep. in 2011. No piece of entertainment could. I mean, we'll get into it. But yeah, I mean, if this is a trigger for you... Please just come back in 30 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we're going to talk about what is literally one of my favorite issues. I can't... Are we? Do we get to the Hollywood issues this far arc or yeah. no? no? Oh! <laughs> okay, so that's my favorite Spider-Man arc of all time. <laughs> You're dumb. Go to commercial. Go to commercial. I just love Doc Ock getting a movie. So, um, let's go. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Exes for Show. We are your premier media response show. You can check us out everywhere at Exes for Show on all your social medias. And now that I'm on Blue Sky, there's going to be an invite code for that. So uh, we're all going to be good on that. Um, and we're talking about JMS Amazing Spider-Man, my absolute favorite run of Spider-Man. And, you know, TK, something I really loved, something that moved me in the car this morning. I've been talking to you about this run since uh, before we were even like, a, you know, before we were even like a couple, like before we were together. And so, like, I, I've been waiting for this run to become part of like our lives. And uh, I was almost said I've been talking to you about this run since before we were friends. And that's why I had to stop myself. <laughs> But uh, psychically, <laughs> I'm just projecting these thoughts. I knew you were out there, Amzadi. But when, oh my God, I had to change your mind because you missed our dead son. So I just changed your brains. We'll get to that. Um, I, you said that this reminded you of New X Men today, and it actually made me tear up a little bit because I think New X Men is one of the finest comic books ever produced. And when this was coming out, it was coming out alongside. New X-Men, of course, as we just said, but it was also coming out alongside uh, Kurt Busiek and George Perez's uh, Avengers. And anyone who knows me knows I am a little too attached to both of those men in a way that is probably sometimes not for my benefit. I'm looking at you, Astro City. So, um, and, you know, George Perez, if you say a bad word about George Perez, I literally remove you from the stream. You have to go. So. That's the only way to do it, man. It's the only um, way to do it. And, you know, it's really unfortunate because these are two iconic runs that it's actually pretty easy to, if you don't really know comics, pretty easy to discover that these are iconic runs and that kind of everything that you know from the last 20 years stems out of these. The same is not true for Avengers. Uh, George Perez, I think, really evolves the art style of some of the Avengers uh, in a way that only George Perez can do, but in a way that his is the transitionary style that gives other people permission to get a little uh, broader with their perspective. What the a great I'm way to look at about it. Most is Wanda. Wanda's such a good example because George Perez draws Wanda as an ethnic woman I oh my mean, god like, she's so stunning it's hard to talk about you know her flowing curly hair um and her incredibly tight features on what is a very beautifully wide set face like he gave her ethnic features that befit her beauty and then nobody does it again until ever like again last year uh, and now we've got this fantastic Scarlet Witch run that is only odd because Russell Dodderman, who's such an incredible artist, is making her a little bit Caucasian on the cover. And then, and you then... Op- <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you open the book and she is an appropriately brown woman. Um, but so, you know, George Perez is doing is setting these style tones more than 20 years ago. And great artists have picked up on them again throughout the Avengers 20 years. But Busiek's run is not something that people are like, and that's what we're going to reference today. For the Avengers, it all starts in Disassembled, yeah, and yeah. Bendis's new Avengers is really where it starts. Uh, and everything stems out of those, which is about three or four years, or two or three years after this. Um, so, you know, different things. 
I really don't want to talk too much about 36 more than to say that the world was responding to an incalculability, right? So when we talk about the incalculable, when we talk about the uh, unimaginable, right? We're talking about this idea of identity, right? Because my identity is I like to think of myself as the biggest man, right? There is nothing you can say to me I can't process. I might not get it right away, but give me a little time. And I define myself that way. I define myself as a man of limitless growth. I might not have the answer, but I will be brave and I will evolve until I do. And that's how I see the world. I live my life by be brave and evolve daily. That is the most important phrase in my world. And that this run is defined by evolve or die is one of the most important things in my life. Literally, I worked at a comic shop the day the other came out. And I can tell you to this day, I have every cover of every issue of the other. Every single cover. And that includes fourth prints. Like, really, this phrase means a lot to me. When I think about 36, when I think about Amazing Spider-Man 36, Kebo, if you would uh, do me the favor of navigating to the second arc slides. Um, I hate this issue, man. I do. And I, I think about books that did it right. I think about Gaiman's The Wheel with Chris Boccolo from 9-11 Part 1, which is collected in absolute death. I think about the Mike Carey story from 9-11 Part 2, which is collected in the final run of Hellblazer, Volume 26, I believe. Might be Volume 25. Um, I even think about Grant Morrison, to use a genius. Uh, Grant Morrison's stunning work with Polaris, grieving the loss of Magneto, standing in front of a statue of him. If you don't think that that is every one of us who looked at the place the towers used to be and didn't know what to do with ourselves, you literally have never been to New York. And... I just hate that this issue was a god of stature being asked by gods of stature to make a statement that was meant to be a proclamation to heal an industry and to heal a people's. But J. Michael Straczynski, in all of his bigness, was not yet big enough to understand 9-11. And... The only thing I truly love about this issue is the final page that they have Storm, Wolverine, Hawkeye, Spider-Man, Reed, Cyclops, Cap, uh, Thing, Thor, Vision, and Wanda lined behind the superheroes is... And you see, I, I, I didn't even think about that. Lined behind the super... Yeah, because on 9-11, if you lived near... If you lived near the towers, 9-11 was tough. And uh, I remember school shutting down. We're 20 miles from, you know, literally the towers. So it was a tough time. And this issue does not capture that. This issue does not capture the nuance, the love. It does not capture the spirit or energy of the men and women. And I'm sure now to this day, non-binary people who became heroes in that moment. Uh, this issue just kind of sucks. And it's a shame because it's a beautiful thing he tried to do, but it does not echo the passion and the sentiment with which he wished to deliver. And I couldn't have said it better, so I'm not going to try and say too much more. Um, what I will say is you don't do justice to the real human tragedy, like what you are talking about, the tragedy of the, you know, being close to and aware of the human 
lost, the like literal people you might know who died by putting Dr. Doom in a panel. Oh my God, the crying panel. Sorry. Weeping. It's offensive because- It's offensive. He's a Dr. genocidal Doom maniac. Dr. Doom doesn't weep over children starving in uh, drought zones or Thank famine you. zones. Thank you. Uh, He's not going to weep over what is mostly adults dying uh, due to the kind of terrorist of... attack he would plan. Right, exactly. Kingpin is sitting there trying to figure out how he can buy up the real estate. He's not really sad. He might be angry because he owns something in the towers and now he wants to do an operation against the Saudis because he recognizes that they're the ones who funded <laughs> this. Uh, but he's not sad magneto's trying to figure out if there are any rare metals that are in the mix that he can get none of these people are sitting there going this is a tragedy that breaks my heart and to say that they are actually belittles the tragedy that it is because it shows that you don't understand what the tragedy is and that you just want to make it something that is beyond comprehension when it is actually very easy to comprehend and that's what makes it sad uh and you know i mean that jimmy eat world had to change the name of their album to self-titled from bleed american it came out before 9 11 it came out that summer but you know we were just doing silly reactionary things in media for the next year happy freedom fries that just got progressively stupider and this is one that is clearly well-intentioned, but is wrong, and we can see that now. It even is labeled interlude. They make it very clear that it is not part of the run in any meaningful way. Isaac and Ishmael. It is Isaac and Ishmael. It is Donna going, and I get a boyfriend. Um, worst moment in the West Wing history, and I'm including all of the years without uh, Aaron Sorkin. It's truly. But so to just hop over to the other issues, if I bought volume two of Amazing Spider Man by J. Michael Straczynski, I would have thrown it in his face. Yeah. I would have been so mad about this yeah. volume. Yeah. So issue 36 is the 9 11 issue, which I feel like we never have to talk about again. Issue 37 is Aunt May's psychological descent into madness realizing the person she loves the most the biggest thing in his life he managed to keep a secret because she never wanted to think about it if we're saying that peter is destroyed by everything that is happening aunt may is destroyed just as bad and she's crippled you see the crippling of an old woman this is like ellen burston in requiem for a dream you guys it is she is that level of broken and on diet pills and it goes, it gets, guys, it's stuff that we think is really cute, but she like goes on a psychotic letter writing campaign to every talk show host on television, telling them to leave Spider-Man alone. I think if we had gotten, if we had gotten a Morrison, uh, she actually would have. It would have been dark. Yeah, I think she actually would have gone a little bit like recognizably unwell what we get here is very tragic and j michael straczynski does a very good job 
but there is a line that he will not cross. And it's it the is... Barbara. It's the it's the um, Angela. It's the Angela Lansbury. She has to stay sacred. Yes, and she can't. He never really gets into the psychology of why she allowed herself to ignore this. And again, a different writer would, and it would be a big problem. It would be a big character flaw for her that would say, this woman is not perfect. Uh, this woman, you know, it's, it's, it's so sweet because she's not homophobic. She says she wouldn't have cared if he was gay. But it would be as though you found out that she did care uh, and that it took a minute for her to come around to the idea and in that minute she was a little bit homophobic that would be a horrible thing to learn about aunt may but if you wrote it the right way you could forgive her and come back from it yes this is yes. written in a way where it will never be said that she did or felt anything that needs to be forgiven it was just they didn't talk enough whoops um and I think it's unfortunate because, you know, it's uh, it's unfortunate because Marissa Tomei is now playing Aunt May, and this yep. character has to live for another 60 years. My dream MILF of all time, Truly. playing Aunt May in my Spider-Man fantasy. Jesus, this is, just cast an older Seth Rogen as Uncle Ben and let me have it. Truly fantastic. Um, I, you know... Catherine Hahn being Agatha Harkness means that Agatha has to become <laughs> a real character now. Yeah. Um, she can't be uh, the magic crone, pure archetype, no character. Aunt May can't be the ant, pure archetype, no character. But Straczynski's kind of trying to keep her there. And unfortunately, for all the good dialogue that this has, it is about bouncing the hero archetype off the the watchful guardian archetype off and, of like the school marm almost and not bouncing spider-man peter parker off of aunt may the woman who was washing blood out of his underwear um so you know at, for the, for the great stuff that comes out of it i think this is one where the 20 years has sort of shown us what we still have to work on here. And, you know, it's that this whole issue sees her psychologically dealing with it. And there's something very powerful about her saying, we need to talk right now. Yeah. She's taking ownership of this. And she flat out says to him, I know you're Spider-Man holding tatters of his costume that he must recognize are missing when he sees it. And he's just like, I don't know how to talk to you about this. And when she's like, I mean, really? Do I love it? Probably not. But is it what it is? It's what it is. And he picks her up and shakes her like Michael Jackson and Blanket. And it's, you know, it's so sweet because in this moment, his euphoria is so extreme. He loses sense of the fact that he is Spider-Man picking up his geriatric aunt and he is just a little boy who is so happy that his mom loves him. Uh, let us not forget, though, that they do, in between the start and the finish of this conversation, both confess that they, in fact, are the reason, the reason that, that Uncle, Uncle Ben, ben is dead. Died. <laughs> Don't love that. Uh, I had Don't... a fight with him, so he's dead. 
I shot him in the face, so he's dead. I mean, like, it just really is... It's gonna get very Spartacus. I killed Uncle Ben. Yeah. No, I did. That's yeah. actually going to be the next Spider-Verse movie. And truly. I'm his friend Jesus. <laughs> uh, truly, Kevo, I think you just nailed it. That's, that is exactly what I'm trying to say, and that it's a little bit that level of silly where, again, I know what they're trying to do, and uh, dealing with feelings of survival's, survivor's guilt and responsibility for the death of another person are right. serious things and they're very difficult and they're things that you sit in therapy for you don't confess to your aunt the weird scenario you concocted that through wacky schemes resulted in the death of your uncle and then you don't confess to your nephew this dumb fight you got anyway it's fine we're fine one time, this thing happened with the dog I don't want to talk about. Like, what are you doing, Aunt May? So what we're saying is the person that Uncle Ben's death is the least about is Uncle Ben. Thanks, everyone. That's, you know who would really appreciate that, TK? Hot Uncle Ben. <laughs> oh my god, yes! I miss him so much! Why was he not in Across the Spider-Verse? Hot Uncle Ben would think that is the funniest thing he's ever heard and would Hot laugh Uncle about ben that for a hundred pages. Oh, um, you mean I'm not important, but I'm my world Spider-Man. All right. So now that we're done with that, does this mean that we can talk about MJ and Kamiko-Tan? Are you saying, are you asking me if we can talk about the Nuff Said and the literal hottest MJ ever has looked in the history of comic books? I'm asking no. if we can talk about her Japanese body pillow boyfriend. <laughs> oh, of course we can. But we also need to take a minute to talk about the fact that nobody draws a hotter uh, Mary Jane on the planet than uh, John Romita Jr., who true. might have been born to draw Daredevil and Ant and uh, Ant May. <laughs> Jesus Christ, might have been drawn to uh, draw Ant Ant Man and Dare May. Okay, I'm gonna try one more time. Daredevil and Mary Jane, please talk so that I don't accidentally say something stupider. Yeah, no. Um, and does that great thing where, uh, you know, she gets a couple pinuppy type panels and they are not. I'm disgusted that you put this woman into this outfit or this position. They are uh, she's in a bikini. Everything is covered her body is drawn like a comic book character, but not like an abomination of the concept of anatomy. Uh, it's not just him. It's the colors, too. I mean, he nails it and he sets oh, things yeah. up for the colors. But MJ, as a redhead, um, you really have to draw her so that her hair responds to the red uh, and then you have to ink her with the right red, or you have to color her with the right red. And it's just done really well here. Um, yeah, I mean, she's gorgeous. She's a model. She really she does looks look like, like Linda Evangelista. Evangelista. Uh, she has a Japanese body pillow. You know what I love about her Japanese body pillow? There's nothing Spider-Man about it. I know. Every time you look at it, you know it's Peter. Yeah. God J.R.J.R. is like, I feel bad because I'm a simp for muscle dudes in the first place. But then J.R.J.R. goes ahead and is such a, like a monster of talent at this point in his career. Do I think his Eternals with Neil Gaiman is as strong as this? No. Do I think his Zeb Wells Spider-Man is as strong as this? 
know. Do I think this is some of the finest fucking pencils I have ever seen in a comic book in my actual life? To this day, 23 years later, yes. Yep. Um, Aunt May in the New York Public Library getting real shitty about people being mean to Spider-Man and writing to The Letterman Show, The Tonight Show, Larry King, Larry King. Dan Rather, Oprah Dan Winfrey. Oprah. And then after she writes all of these letters, she looks at her to-do list. And it, I, this is hard. It's drop off laundry, cancel subscription to papers that don't like Peter, try to improve Peter's image. And she has those three checked off. It's number four. Pick up Zantac and Tum uh, and Tux. What the hell are Tux? Um, but it says Tux. Ad- adult diapers. Oh, geez. And then number five is keep working to forgive Peter. Oh my God! Like yeah. I, she loves him so much that she hates herself for not being able to forgive him. It's on her to do list, and a woman like that doesn't put things on her to do list if she's not going to do them, and like. How many days must that have been on her to-do list? And how many days must it have been too hard to look at? And I just think Aunt May is one of the finest people in comics ever. Yeah. Um, she then modifies to pick up lots of Lots Zantac. of Zantac. <laughs> this is not going to be easy. Um, and, you know, there's it's a twofold thing because she is going to keep telling Peter to stop because she does not want him to die. Uh she she wants this to stop not because she doesn't like vigilantism uh but because she does not want her nephew her son put in harm's way she does not think he should be the person that goes out there and does these things she wants him to be a teacher she wants him to have a good happy life with mj she does not want him getting the shit beat out of him by doc ock what her ex her ex-husband I'm just saying the forgiveness is because of this lying because of, you know, because of the secrets they kept from each other, um, which is a whole other thing. Oh my God. They kept secrets from each other. Does she fear that he got that from her? Oh, this is the best run of any comic book ever. Just get out of the way. Yeah. Um, so then we get 40 and 40 gives me, the first ever angry daddy who I was desperate for the affection and approval of J Jonah Jameson's mustache reminds me why I'm a top all the time. I am out of control attracted to like every version of J Jonah Jameson there has ever been. Um, and, uh, J Jonah Jameson capable of learning a lesson in a post nine 11 age working ostensibly three blocks from the World Trade Center is a J. Jonah Jameson that makes me reconsider um, who he is as a man. I think every run, and I have actually read every, and I I was doing the homework on this, I've read every Spider-Man run except Nick Spencer's since, which is why when we were doing our Slingers coverage, I had no idea about any of that Nick Spencer Slingers stuff, but... Uh, with a little bit of Dan Slott exception, I've now read everything but the last like five issues of Zeb Wells and Nick Spencer. There is not a page of J. Jonah Jameson that does not come from this run. Yeah. Uh, and, and one of the things that I, when I messaged you about how everything kind of comes out of this, it was thinking about the 
paternal role that J. Jonah Jameson has taken on in Peter Parker's life that is really being highlighted in Zeb Wells' Amazing Spider-Man. Yes. And there's this thing happening where uh, J. Jonah Jameson and Norman Osborn are like Peter's odd couple dads <laughs> um, yes. that fight because they both know what's best for him they both know each other are assholes but they also both know the other one is not a bad guy and that they're both trying to figure it out so you know J. Jonah Jameson is forgiving of Norman Osborn and not you know he doesn't spend the whole time just being like well you're the green goblin over and over again he really recognizes that Osborn is trying is is acting in good faith and Norman recognizes the same thing they both annoy each other they both don't agree on things so they fight but the J. Jonah Jameson that you see in Zeb Wells Amazing Spider-Man is the you can see the through line directly to the man in these pages that you're talking about and specifically here when he is dressed down by May a little bit and great while, term for it and while he does not capitulate you know she says i will cancel and he says i can lose the dollar 50 a week i can lose the dollar 50 a week what but he a feels fucking bad. capitalist thing exactly because it's still capitalism he feels bad but it's the rules he feels bad he does not like that he that aunt may is upset with him yes and that he said that he will accept it he doesn't like it but he does it uh and that guy 22 years later whatever is in the pages of zeb wells amazing spider-man and that's amazing when you write something that stands the test of time like that uh you know and and we've seen other versions of j jonah jameson who are not that guy uh, we've read a thousand of them in spider-verse yeah um but like the Cassandra Nova that you see in Grant Morrison's new X-Men is her. the one that we have been seeing lately in Steve Orlando's Marauders. She's okay. A uh, little different situation there. That's the problem. The situation ruins her. But that, that's a really great way you pointed that out, actually. J. Jonah Jameson is the same, and no matter the situation, he thrives. Yeah. Cassandra Nova is the same, and the situation ruins her. I don't think it ruins her, but it doesn't allow for the same breadth of character. Uh, okay, but that's a that's a longer conversation about what what we do when we cast these characters and these things. Um, but yeah, I mean, just you can see J. Michael Straczynski knows what he's doing, man. He really does. And to that end, I think Shade, the villain of 40 through 42, could have become the bad guy of a major event. Uh, his time could still be coming. It's bonkers. Four appearances is... ever, and one of them is a fucking flashback. This, this is, is one of the best villains Marvel has ever randomly produced for a book. I just think that, like, and this run does not lose steam until it gets Civil Ward around 519. This run just doesn't lose steam for 40 issues. This run is this good. The next villain is Shathara. Yep. What the fuck? So, okay. This character, Shade, is a bad guy who exists in an in-between world because his cellmate, we come to find out, 
was doing a spell to give himself these like shadow shape shifty. He was like, trying to get on the astral plane. Yeah, but like specifically to have powers on the astral plane. And this guy stops his cellmate from doing it and like steals it. So he's damaged and he doesn't quite have the powers right. And it ties into an ongoing narrative that's been going on in the background of a child that's in one of Peter's classes whose older brother has gone missing. And it turns out Shade is responsible for a number of the homeless people that go missing. This leads Peter to contacting Doctor Strange. Everything that happens as a result of Peter contacting Doctor Strange, I think, is the pinnacle moment that changes the Marvel Universe forever. There is a moment... Where somebody says to Peter, yeah, spider magic is older than Sorcerer Supremes. Why do you think Doctor Strange is always making your thwip motion? And Peter goes, what? And it's really that they only had so many hands they could draw, but they made it work. And there's a lot of really funny things. Um, if you go to page uh, five of the digital of Amazing Spider-Man number i want to say it's 42 or might be 41 dr strange says he has an appointment that he cannot miss it's an appointment with death which is explained in the editor's notes as as seen in dr strange miniseries the other side of darkness which hasn't been written yet but will be and will make a lot more sense no really why would we lie about this those are the editor's notes marvel ultimately rejects jms's pitch for dr strange the other side of darkness and instead approve his pitch for a Doctor Strange re-origin called Strange. But JMS needed those events for things in his stories to work. So his penultimate issue of Amazing Spider-Man is called The Other Side of Darkness. And this Doctor Strange leaves this issue and travels to Amazing Spider-Man 543 and then travels back. That's the coolest fucking thing I've ever heard. I a mean, guy I was really told by edit that. Yeah. I respect that Straczynski wouldn't let this go. Exactly. He said, I don't care how much editorial interference it takes. My story is my story. And if you're not going to remove that editor's note from subsequent printings, I won't let you take down my reputation as a storyteller. Yep. I'm going to close that door. And he did in a masterful way. So... And how do you how do you feel about all of that? So I also want to point out that, you know, obviously uh, there has been interaction between Doctor Strange and Spider-Man prior to this. But, Wait, really? They've ever met? But gosh, if this doesn't give us the flavor of the thing we all loved. Uh, I'm, of course, that, talking about No Way Home. Which is uh, crazy because this predates No Way Home by 20 years. But that is... When you make the epic iconographic run, it's everywhere. And it doesn't matter that No Way Home is not specifically doing this story. It's that the interaction between these two in this way is planted here. And this is where you really see Peter gets himself into things that only Strange can deal with and holy shit does he annoy Strange so much but Strange is still gonna help because he's a good kid but maybe that's a mistake because the good kid is a mess and it's just the point being that we had 30 plus almost 40 years of comics up to 
the time when these stories are happening and we had to start doing things different. And so although there's a through line for so many books, this really is kind of the new start for so many things. Yes. And when you look at where movies like No Way Home get their story, you have to look at these iconographic runs. Hey, what's the ending of No Way Home? Everyone forgets Spider-Man? What's the ending of JMS's run? Everyone forgets Spider-Man? Why? Because they've both been outed on television? And who suffers the hardest? Mary Jane? And whose death is at the center of both mysteries? Aunt May? Oh my god, No Way Home is the JMS movie we never realized is a JMS movie. Wow. I just, like, that went from, like, an okay movie that I really liked despite its flaws to a movie that has such totemic symbology to me. Um, I I have a hard time talking about the final issue of this run. Um, I don't... I Look, I, like everybody of my age, had a crush on Haley Williams for years. But I'm not into misery business. And that said... My heart hurts because the end of this arc is Peter goes into the astral plane to save his young student from Shade, who is only caught because she's trying to save her brother. And while Peter is trapped in the astral plane, he has an actual chance to make things work with Mary Jane, who he's had no contact with this whole run. She's been appearing, but doing her own thing, hugging a body pillow, living out in California. And she's home now. And Peter has this chance to be with her. And he's trapped in the astral plane and his floating body has to say, I love you, please don't go as her plane takes off and he is trapped a floating mass of feelings and nothing else. And can't, he is literally gay panic stopping you from being able to talk about your feelings. He's trapped in his mind because he was doing what he thought was right. So he couldn't tell the person that he loved in the one chance he had that he loved them. The metaphor. God, this is like literally like talking about this run makes it better. There are books that we used to say each week talking about them made them worse. But like the more we talk about this, the more this becomes clear to me that this guy is JMS is like an actual master of his craft. And I'll be honest. I don't love Babylon 5. I don't love Murder, She Wrote. I don't love Jericho. I like JMS as a writer. I don't really love his television as a rule. I just think he's one of the finest comic writers ever. Like ever, ever, ever. And this run really presents it. How did you feel about the torture porn of Pete watching Mary Jane fly off? You know, this is the one thing that is tough because of knowing what comes after uh this is the reverberation throughout time and space that one more day causes uh in a way that is so toxic um that it makes it difficult to enjoy um i because i am a spider girl boy and because I know that we have uh, already had 
a Peter and Mary Jane who are married with child? God, there's like literally nothing wrong with any version of Mary Jane. But if you don't think that that is the most incredible version of Mary Jane ever, I can't have a conversation with you. And I'm not just talking about uh, the the MJ from Earth uh, 982 or 928. Um, I... Yeah, I thought we were both talking about um, renew your vows. Oh, I mean that—that's a whole other thing. He's the I, finest I, MJ of all time. I one hundred percent. I'm My talking wife. about the six one six MJ in nineteen ninety eight when that baby does not yes. go on to be Mayday. Yeah, that woman is this woman, and there's no reason for it. Um, wow, that's a I wow. I did not make that connection. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I I'm I can get past it if I know that she's going on to be Spinneret or to be uh, the mother of a a great spider person, the partner of Peter Parker and everything, his top, you know, the one in charge. But she's. I'm about to spoil Amazing Spider-Man, so fly away. She is married to some other dude with disappearing adopted children now. She's so far away from who she is supposed to be. And if we're talking about iconographic runs that establish these things, uh, the heartbreak is when the iconography is there for these next steps. And I know we're not getting there. So, you know, I'm bummed that the through line from being the mother of Mayday to this is not quite the journey I want for her, but I'm really like distraught that I know that it's only downhill from here. But again, Straczynski knows how to play the drama and the trauma and the romance. And we're about to uh, talk about some three issues that give us some fun to have with the, with the romance. I have this really clear memory of Alex Kurtzman, who, if you aren't aware, is one of the most handsome MTV producers of all time, describing his first time running MTV Spring Break and that a young woman in a stripping contest drops down so hard that he literally watches it force 18-year-old Joey Lawrence through the rest of puberty. And you can see his voice drop, his facial hair grow, and his manhood expand as he looks at this woman drop down so hard. And the moment I realized that these three issues literally might as well be called Precursor to Superior Spider-Man, I had the same reaction. There isn't a moment of Superior Spider-Man that isn't made six trillion times more incredible by these three issues. I've never been so impressed by Christos Gage than I am by having reread these three issues and realizing what a fucking genius that man is. Yep. Can't wait to talk about it. So we're going to pop, pop, pop to commercial real quick. That was just a little bit of a, a little bit of scatting for you in case you guys weren't sure. It's my spider jazz, right? And we're going to do Madam Web. Uh, yeah, no, let's do a Madam Web read. Um, so, oh no, yeah, I knew what I was saying. So, all right, let's uh, let's bop to some commercials. Then we're gonna hop over to Hollywood, and we're gonna finish this bad boy out and uh, celebrate all the things that make Mary Jane and Aunt May the actual stars of this book. Also, the tentacles. Let's do it. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome back yet again to X's for Show, your premier media response show. And in the age of Spider-Verse, that is, of course, into, across, and the many comic versions, it is a really good idea to take a look at where everything became so websy. And, of course, that traces back to the incredible JMS Spider-Man, which, through the course of this conversation, we've come to not only realize, dictates so much of the of the content of Amazing Spider-Man to this day, including runs by guys like Dan Slott, Nick Spencer, and Zeb Wells, but even goes on to influence the films. Now, of course, the score playing right now is the score from Spider-Man Homecoming, I believe yeah. that. Uh, and thank you so much, Kevo. I, I spent hours uh, arranging this, and I'm like, I don't remember which one it's from. It's the Spider-Man theme, though, and it shows up in all the movies. MCU theme. Yeah. Um, big fan of both this film. Uh, so grateful for Kevo's constant encouragement to do these amazing arrangements. And of course, everybody on the show, Kevo and TK, uh, listening to countless edits of them. So, you know, anyway, back to the show. Uh, I am so excited to talk about Spider-Man 43 through 45, because what they represent is the first time this run took a chance on side characters. Spider-Man 30 to 42 represents the first year of Amazing Spider-Man by JMS, and it literally features four recurring characters. It's Peter, surrounded by Mary Jane, Aunt May, J. Jonah, and he's given a new side character in a student that he cares for. I guess you could say Ezekiel, but Ezekiel appears five times and then disappears. I guess you could say Moreland, but Moreland appears five times and disappears. You could maybe say the effects of Shade kidnapping kids, but Shade only appears three times. Instead, what JMS has managed to do in his first year is shape a story so completely about Spider-Man that it doesn't need other people, yet never feels thin. And as we move to 43 to 45, he literally shows that the only reason he didn't use more characters was because he simply didn't have to. And the introduction of Doc Ock, the reintroduction of Mary Jane in a physical way, Aunt May's inclusion into the heist team, sort of, kind of, coming up with quick dildo stories to get herself out of having to uh, explain web shooters. So Spider-Man, uh, Spider-Man, Peter and uh, Aunt May are going through uh, airport security and they're like, what are these? And they're obviously web shooters. And Aunt May is like, they're a geriatric vaginal device. What of it? Technically, she says geriatric gynecological device, which I'm just... It was everything to me as a kid. What a fucking queen. Uh, and then uh, her king shows up. I want to point out that uh, Doc Ock is the only man who has fucked Aunt May and Mary Jane. <laughs> and he shows up here. Um <gasps> I always thought that I hated Superior Spider-Man, but Christos Gage wrote such an incredibly forgivable character who hated everything he did as Superior Spider-Man that this new identity, uh, what was his hot, what's his hot boy name? Oh God, something Tolliver, right? Yeah, it's like Oliver Tolliver. It's like, it's like, <laughs> it's like Hung Boy McTolliver or whatever. And he's half Spider-Man, half himself. Elliot Tolliver. Elliot Tolliver. He's a hundred percent that Fire Island twink. So, um, which is so funny because, like, now I'm wondering if he, if Elliot Tolliver's look was kind of based on Carlisle. I can't stop seeing that now that you say it, and I'm fucking furious. So, anyway, we just for the setup on this one, 
one of the things that I love more than anything is a bottle episode. Mm-hmm. And what if you redefine the bottle? What if the bottle isn't a physical bottle, but it's the idea of a bottle? What if all three of these issues exist exclusively in terms of the parts you need to express this Hollywood story? What if the bottle is escaping Mary Jane from Hollywood? Holy shit. This is like literally one of the best arcs I have ever read of anything in my life. It is a full takedown of this run of Spider-Man, of the films, of the previous runs of Spider-Man, of JMS as a writer, of editorial. And then what it does is it says, yeah, you know how you have a problem with all of those things? I can't figure out why you bought this book then. Can you? And... You can't fight it. It's the smartest sentence you've ever heard. And again, just in the, um, this is all still the most relevant stuff and we're all still referencing it. The most recent issue of Spider-Man, uh, or maybe the last issue, number 27 features, uh, the start of a storyline in which Otto's, uh, six arms are sentient and they're like a pet and they're like a buddy for J. Jonah Jameson. And like and, they are like friends somehow. And here we see the arms behaving like that. And it's not something you see a lot. Uh but it's a great hitch for a story. You know, this is this technology of course is very advanced. So the idea that there's AI in the mix, uh, you know, and the look for them here with th- this makes just total sense because it's JRJR in both instances. But, you know, the point is these seeds get planted and you can always come back to them, but you only should when they are the greats. And this is this is the greats. It's hard for me to even talk about how much I love this arc because I hate the villain. He is the dumbest villain in the world. Yeah. Carlisle is such a pathetic joke. So the bad guy of this is a guy who's bought a bunch of the technology that was created by Doc Ock to build himself what is basically actually um, part scorpion Doc Ock suit. And what's wild is it's not so much that he's trying to fight Peter. It's that this is literally in part a story about Doc Ock not like somebody not liking somebody stealing his intellectual property. This is literally a story about a character from the 1960s having a problem with somebody modernizing their story for an audience that understands science. Oh my god. Everything yeah. about this arc fires on a trillion cylinders. It is a takedown of writers who refuse to let Spider-Man grow up down to the fact that the the movie that they're there for that Mary Jane is making is called Lobster Man and it's a story about a superhero Lobster Man who was bit by a radioactive lobster and the plot of this sequel is that it turns out the lobster was the avatar of the lobster god and it was a radioactive lobster god lobster that bit him and lobster man's actor says 
No one will ever accept this. They're already rioting on the message boards at the spoilers. And meanwhile, two security guards are talking about how shitty Babylon 5. One of them is talking about how shitty Babylon yeah. 5 is. And the other one says, no, that's the point. It's, um, it's so good. Oh, my God. I can't get over this book. I can't get over this book. And yeah, you know, you've got Carlisle, who is not the most compelling villain, but is raising the question of what if this costume design from the 60s is dumb? <laughs> Which, again, you know a master at work when that person says, I'm going to ask the question and I'll play with it, but I'm not going to say, "I'm yes, that's totally the correct question and let's get rid of the costume. Because that's what your guys who walk into the office and their pitch is, I'm going to modernize everything. I'm going to do it for a new generation. Uh, you know, this will be the guys who really want you to think that they are the next big thing will come in and say we gotta change doc ock's suit it's too old it wouldn't look like that anymore why is he an old guy we need young guys somebody like elliot Tolliver. yeah that's why I, I said that already bubba no i'm saying like like you're saying we need a young version of doc oh, ock oh yes that's literally th that's the that's version a, we like. Right. That's the other way yeah. to do it. But in the meantime, JMS is coming in and saying, somebody needs to have asked the question because it is a good question. The suit's probably not, the arms are probably not the most functional way to do this. Right. And having a whole suit probably is. But that doesn't mean I need to kill Otto Octavius in this arc and make this guy the new Doc Ock only to have the whole thing cycle back through retcons and put Doc Ock back in the suit, we'll just have a really good bottle episode arc where the new suit is the villain, and we'll go from there. And the thing that it allows us to highlight is kind of the way we accept certain things about iconography. Do you actually think the simplified version of drawing a spider is cool? Do you think a circle with eight sticks is cool? Why? You don't even really like spiders. So let's take that. What else is a slightly evolved multi-legged thing? I know. Lobster man. And here he is. In all of his amazing glory. And do you know what I love about lobster man? It's so unintentional. But five years later, Lobster Man would become one of the most popular X-Men ever. Annalee. I, I mean, I'm sorry. I meant queer X-Men. Like, I specifically meant, like, for what he is, Annalee is a legend in X-Books. For being a young queer boy, he is top tier. He is what everybody dreamed Beto and Sam and Cypher would be one day. He is a gay boy who loves to work at a bar and tell a big old bear how sexy his mustache is. So Annalie is full-time. Exactly this design, but green. And it's a joke here. And that's what makes it interesting. The joke is, look at this dumb muscled guy with a giant claw. How is that a superhero? That's Annalie. Yeah. And that's what JMS is exposing. The yeah. only reason this is dumb is because you're calling him Lobster Man. And you're treating it dumb. 
But if you switch this slightly in any direction, the animal, the design, he even has the same symbol on his chest, essentially, a simplified lobster. But the functionality is the presentation and the concept of how we see this person iterating this animal. An iteration of a lobster can be terrifying. Anyone who's read the second book of the Dark Tower series understands lobsters are pretty fucking scary when they want to be. I mean, it's got claws and armor. If you really were putting them side by side and were like, which would be a better battle creature, a lobster or a spider? Thank you. You would probably pick lobster. I think a lot of Fringe, the TV show from Fox, where they had two different universes, and at one point, two characters from two different universes are talking about superheroes. And the one from the other is like, Batman. No, we have the Mantis. What's so scary about a bat? If you grew up with it, and and this is the thing you'd been building up for 60 years, uh, yeah, of course. But it could have been anything. And I think the other side of it is... Um... Don't take it too seriously. You're right. It is stupid. Yes. You're right. It's pretty fucking stupid. You can have a little bit of a laugh. That's okay. We don't need to be in our feelings about this all the time. We don't got to have lobster fifis. No, sir. Or spider fifis. That's actually the thing. I don't have spider fifis. Yeah. I am Dobsonless when it comes to spiders. But do you know what I am Trixabelle about? I'm all sorts of Fifi about the idea of what a hero is, which is why the point at which I got the most choked up in an episode about literally three of my all-time favorite comic book arcs of all time, except the second one, which sucks, and I only love it in concept, is Peter thinking his responsibility is to children. I don't think I care about Spider-Man. I care about the unifying elements that make a Spider-Man, which is what's weird. If you actually ask me what I love about food shows, I love food. Yeah, the competitors are cool, but uh, anyone who knows me in person knows that I will shove someone I love out of the way to get to a coffee cake. And uh, I love food more than I love people. (laughs) So when I watch food shows, it's really about the food. Sorry, Antonia, but it's about the food. Um. When I watch design, yeah, when I watch design shows, it's about artists. It's about watching somebody make what they love come to life. And I think that's X-Men versus Spider-Man for me. What do I love? I love that X-Men are different. I love that they are people who were born different and live differently and thrive by community. I love that spider people are bound by a code of ethics, not by a magical bite. Sure, the magical bite is how you identify them, but that's Buffy getting the mole shaved off in the film. That's just a marker that indicates the quality of the person. Because Mary Jane and Aunt May's conversation in issue 45 of Amazing Spider-Man might be the best conversation between two women in any comic book where they technically fail the Bechdel test every line. Because the conversation isn't about how they're affected by Spider-Man. It's about how they were unavoidably affected by the presence of this creature. It's as if to say these two women are discussing World War II in the course of their lifetime. They're not talking about a man. They're talking about a creature, an identity, an 
an archetype that affects them. It fails the Bechdel test, and I truly wish it was written better. But what is there is one of the finest examples of good intent that just misses the mark. These women are realized. They're passionate, they're strong, and they're controlled. Peter stands as an object in the room, barely there to be more than a lamp, illuminating these two women's conversation. The highlight of this is, for me, that these two women realize that the cross-generational trauma caused by a, a creature like Spider-Man existing in their life, and I'm using creature to determine Spider-Man from man Peter Parker, totemic Spider-Man from person Peter. They're not discussing the way person Peter affects them. They're discussing the way totemic Spider-Man affects them. So they technically fail the Bechdel test. But it's an important moment for women in comics saying, this is how men affect us. This is what you do to women when you make them ancillary. This is what happens to women characters when they are nothing but the supporting character. And in that regard, it's one of the finest conversations ever by illustrating the ways in which women are seconded to show women being seconded. And I think even, you know, you just get that one moment where, you know, May looks at Mary Jane. Is there anything else to tell me? (laughs) (laughs) It's the best moment in the book. It really is. And, you know, I think the way that she looks, there's a blank panel where it's just her looking at her and then she says it. And like, no, that is obviously not passing the Bechdel test. Like, but... It is gesturing at the idea that they have more to say to each other. Yes. And there is more going on here. And, you know, I I don't blame J. Michael Straczynski for not necessarily being the person to write uh, May and Mary Jane. Uh, I am bummed that it took this long to get Mary Jane and Black Cat, uh, a book that does, in fact, pass the Bechdel test and is fantastic. Um, Honest to gosh, it is my second favorite Needless Spider book right now yeah. behind, and I can't believe I'm saying this. Please don't quote me on this. I don't ever want to. I don't want to answer this. Come on, is Gold Goblin the best fucking Spider book of all time? No, Red Goblin. But then that's what I meant. Oh my god, that's what I meant. That's what I meant. I meant the yes. ongoing one. Yes. Is Red, Red Goblin, Goblin the best? So the answer was no. Book? Is it really the best goddamn spider book of all time? Yeah. And don't get me wrong. Gold Goblin is a very He's excellent. But I I meant Rascal. Yes. uh, It's just very confused. Uh, But yeah, I mean, all of that, all of these characters are more complicated than being Peter's friends in rogues gallery. Truly. It's all in here. I can't wait to get to the next arcs of this because they make this arcs. They make this round of arcs. Uh, look like it wasn't written by JMS. We're about to enter some places where like, you know, I think about dream space, right? And I just want to say something. You said something really perfect about JMS is not the person to write Aunt May and Mary Jane necessarily. And I think about how I was reading pretty extensively. We have an episode on Saturday coming up about the exquisite excellence of Chantus, actress, and comic book design lord Tori Amos and we have that episode coming up on Saturday and I was thinking about how she actually is she's so proud of her native heritage there are very few celebrities who proudly proclaim I am Cherokee of the Wampum Nation the way she does but then when you ask her to speak for her tribe 
the only words that will ever come out of her mouth are, I believe it is not my place to speak for the First Nation as they are a great sacred people and that is a sacred honor and they have not bestowed it upon me. Oh my God, what a beautiful way to say that. And J. Michael Straczynski sort of says the same thing. I want to say that J. Michael Straczynski does something no other man in the history of Amazing Spider-Man does up through then. He asks a woman to co-write 10 issues with him. Fiona Avery will co-write 10 issues of Amazing Spider-Man, making her the first woman to do so. And that's at JMS's request. So he doesn't always get it right. But gosh darn it, does he put in the effort to get fucking close? And I just, you know, this is actually a dream come true. Since the day I met Kevo, I've told him that Spider-Man is a magic creature. And since the day I met you, I told you that JMS's run was the best. And it's really funny that one time we're on air, we're literally on air. And he's like, and there's this guy, Ezekiel. I'm like, my favorite spider character ever. And he's like, and there's this guy, Moreland. And I'm like, my favorite spider villain ever. It's the only run I know anything about. And he's like, you cannot, you've literally said you know nothing about Spider-Man. The only run you know anything about you've said is the JM, oh my God, this is the JMS run. And like, it's one of those things where literally this run informs what everyone thinks about Spider-Man, whether they realize it or not, just like new X-Men. Yep. And getting to share this with two men that I think are geniuses, that I think are incredible. You know, TK, you're along for the read. Kevo, you're along for the ride. But everybody's along for the experience and it's time to evolve or die. And that's what Peter is forced to do here. He doesn't get an opportunity to think about his evolution. He doesn't get to think about the things he's becoming. He has to evolve or die. I'm not a planner. And anyone who knows me knows that I make plans so I can throw them out. That's Peter. In that way, this run of Amazing Spider-Man is me. It's frenetic, it's chaotic, and it doesn't understand its own origins to figure out where it's going next. And not every step or every movement is comfortable or convenient. But I can say for literal sure, this is the first episode in the history of X's for podcast, X's for show, or HTML, shy of the time we covered the Alien franchise, where I am going to give the episode's content an A+, despite its faults. This, for me, changed me as a storyteller. Kid Riot could not exist without this run. My music could not exist without this run. And who I am as a man who understands responsibility for those who need someone to care for them could not exist without this run. Issue 36 is kind of garbage. Issues 37 and 38 are sort of stretched out for no reason. But God damn it, I sucked at 22 and 24 to 25, I was basically the same guy. So I am proud to talk about JMS's ASM 30 through 45. I give it an A plus and it is the first A plus I have ever given in the history of the show. And since we agreed to cover this a year and a half ago, I have been saving this A plus to be my first and without question, this is my favorite run of Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, I absolutely would give the first arc, the Moreland arc, an A+. Yeah. Uh, unequivocally. Um, that... <laughs> it's a D. But... Uh, I'm giving that 9-11 issue a D. But even if I set that aside, uh, the next ones are 
A's, A minuses. I maybe there's a B plus in there. I maybe give the Hollywood like an A minus, a B plus. Um, it's a very good run. It's a very good story, but it's not you know amazing. Uh, the interlude with May and Peter talking, uh, you know, with May sort of uh, figuring things out and then talking to Peter. That's like an A story, right? There. That's a fantastic a story um so you know it's really really high grading for me uh and anything that is low is not the low of like something really bad happened and i'm taking points away it's uh this is just a less iconic arc uh and that when i talk about that you know i'm talking about the hollywood arc it's very it's funny it has some really good beats it Uh, is just jms yeah, it's just a, it's a little bit more standard, and yeah. it, it it should be that sometimes. You know, Kevo, I want to pull you in, but I want to make an an analogy to pull you in with. This came out while we were in puberty, and like I remember being like ten years old and somebody being like hairy dudes, and I was like, "That's gross. Mm-hmm. Hairy men are gross." And then one day, I I realized I had like sexual impulse. And one of my sexual impulses was immediately body hair is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. It makes a man. And like without it, a man is still a man. And anyone who says they are a man is a man to me. You know, the quality of manhood is beautiful in any form, but something I love is body hair. And that was something I realized as a transformation of growing into adulthood. I came to realize that's actually a defining element of my attraction to someone see that i've watched every episode of catfish hey neve but you know kevo when we think about puberty when we think about the 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 pain of massive growth in a short period of time this came out when you were 15 and 16 years old these issues about spider-man being a queer analogy came out as you were living a queer analogy and believing in magic as something that was in our world and it coming to shape your understanding of the world, knowing that Peter Parker was simultaneously going through the journey you were 20 years older than you 20 years ago and hearing us talk about it. Does that maybe contextualize why this has always been such a run for me? Oh, for sure. Uh, and, you know, it speaks so much about the evolution of spider-man as a character about the evolution of how we did and had to tell these stories and how we can tell them now where uh it had to be such an allegory still at that point and this is like 40 years into the character's run uh you know a good 20 or so years after the character started being taken more seriously as an adult and now 20 more years later after this we're able to outright tell so many more stories like this without it having to be coded but the choice to tell those coded stories through characters like this uh through characters like buffy through films like the x-men films uh it really meant so much at the time and because we aren't as far along as we would like it's often hard to lose sight of how far we've come since a story like this and uh, how important it was. Because, yeah, I definitely saw myself in a lot of the stories like this one, like you're talking about, where we understood the allegory that they were telling. You know, I think about the person that convinced me Spider-Man was worth my time. I only cared about this run because I cared about JMS. Um, I 
was like a simple kid. And if Wizard told me somebody was a big deal to be coming onto a book, I read it. I didn't really understand what it meant to follow someone because you were engaged in them. And I think my obsession with MC2 actually maybe even belies that. You know what I mean? So I came to JMS as a result of I was told to. But the man who draws Kid Riot, the man who drew the first 50 issues of Kid Riot and continues to draw it, is a man who, no matter the iteration of self, saw something in the heroicism of Spider-Man. And there's something in getting to see someone who says Spider-Man might not be me, but we're the same thing. And like, I'm not saying that I see Penciler Taron from Kid Riot as our world's spider totemic representation, but, but I'm sure. saying there's Ben Riley's and there's Kane mm. and there's Miles Morales's and there's Lobster Man and there's so many spider people and there's a dexterity of life and world. Oh, Kid Riot, one of the one of the proudest things in my entire world. Um, I don't know. I just want to say that this run helped me realize that comics are literature. I grew up reading Sandman, so I always knew Sandman was literature and comics. This was the first book that really made me question things. I admittedly didn't come to New X-Men until years after I read this. I read this before I read New X-Men. I got this before I got New X-Men, and I loved this before I loved New X-Men. Ultimately, New X-Men means more to me. New X-Men is my favorite comic book of all time, and I think the Zorn reveal is the single greatest reveal in any piece of fiction in history. Made me feel sick for literal years, and uh, loved it. Every word. Uh, <laughs> so good. But this is probably my number two. Ever. This is probably my number two comic run ever. And rereading it, reading all of that Spider-Man, it wasn't until I read all of that Spider-Verse, all of that MZ2, all of that Slingers, all of that Tom DeFalco late-era Spider-Man, all of that Dan Slott, all of that Mark Wade, all of that... Uh, I actually read some Nick Spencer. I've read all of Zeb Wells' original run, all of his current run. I have now read all of Donny Cates' Venom. I have read all of Al Ewing's Venom. I've read all of uh a lot of shit i've read a lot of shit this spider-man is made better by everything i read and i wish for every single one of you something like that where your world makes something you love even better to you every time you read it and i wonder how much of that is i've let this run influence me i've begun to believe there is magic symbology in everything i see isn't that what a good comic book does, though? Doesn't it make you want that? Aren't we all Tommy Taylor in the unwritten? Isn't this all the ship that sank twice? So, anyway, I love this run. A+. Plus, uh, TK gave it a, a B plus to an A. Kevo said he found it fascinating. And uh, let's talk about some fascinating things coming up. We got a board coming up this way, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, I do want you to be you. And uh, that is, of course, Kid Riot. You can check that out at kidriotcomics.com. It's one of the proudest things I've ever worked on in my life. It is uh, a some billions of issues, long comic series at this point, but definitely worth checking out. Our continued TV coverage includes Drag Race, Crime Scene Kitchen, Food Trucks. We've got Is It Cake, which didn't make the board yet, but it's coming, trust me, because uh, we love Mikey Day. 
Silo, Strange New Worlds, Secret Invasion, Loki and Echo in the Offset, uh, Ahsoka, which didn't get a trailer because Twitter's a shit show, and uh, a whole lot of magical stuff. So I am probably most excited about talking about some of the insane things that happened on Great Food Truck Race as someone has decided they are the kingpin of Great Food Trucks, and it is getting crazy. Um, it's a real wild season. How about you guys? What are you most excited to talk about on Sunday from our TV board? We're coming up on the end of Drag Race, and so that is uh, moving to the front of the queue for me. I think that's really fair. You know, it's been a really crazy season. I mean, maybe at times an uninteresting season, but certainly a dense season to discuss. Yeah. yeah. That's where I'm at right now. Kevo, what's got your fancy all tickled all sorts of pink? Uh, I'm with you on Food Truck. I'm definitely also uh, enjoying this season of Project Runway, although uh, it's not really heating up yet in any way. It's just sort of enjoying watching it. And that, they eliminated the hottest elimi- guy. That elimination oh, yeah. was wild. So I, for me, it maybe is not heating up in like a controversy way. Yeah. But there is really something to talk about with yeah, that no idea safe. of like, uh, it's impossible to eliminate somebody that isn't shocking because they're all so good. Exactly. On an all stars. It's really when you do pick the right people for it, it's hard for every elimination not to be gutting and it's it's interesting to note that so early on i love that perspective kevo you actually just changed the way i thought about something that's also on this board star trek and that's kevo you coming to star trek has been me coming out a second time levels of freeing as a human man your level of trekkiedom is i swear to god the only thing you are more than a trekkie at this point is a whovian and like your dedication to trek is so beautiful and like one of the things that that's made me think about is no one struggles. Who's your captain? Mine is Pike. I know for TK, it's Janeway. Kevo, I have to assume for you, it's probably somewhere between Cisco and Picard. Maybe Michael. Mm, Michael. Right. So like for, you know, you have your show because captain is something you feel so passionately about. But, like, I don't know anybody who's like, there's only one ensign that matters. And obviously, it's Ro because she's the worst and we should never talk about her. So that's the only No, it's Mariner. She turned out okay. Ro sucks. And I I have a hard time ever backing down from that. And, yes, uh, as I am quite literally, as a guy who wishes he was Pike, that, of course, actually makes me Mariner. If you wish you were Pike, you definitely are just Mariner. Um, And that is quite literally how it works. Uh, It is, of course, also the greatest compliment in the world to be compared to uh, Ensign Mariner. What an unbelievable honor. Um, Anyway, I just I think Star Trek is one of the best things we're talking about right now. And I love talking about it with you gentlemen. Heck yeah. But until we return to the pages, uh, the minutes and the um, I don't know, whatever else music does, the, the notes. Of all of the incredible stuff we're covering, like Saturday's episode about the incredible legacy of Tori Amos and the four Tori Amos shows that the guy down there saw, the three eyes saw, the two this guy saw, and the one that series contributor and show creator and our amazing partner, JoJo, uh, saw. 
on Saturday. And then, of course, our TV highlights and spotlights on Sunday. You can check the show out at X is for show on all your medias. That's X is for show. You can check this guy down there out at his new handle. Hey, TK, where can everybody find you at this bitchin' new handle? You can find me at TK Elemental everywhere but Blue Sky for just a little bit longer until my invite kicks in. Or if you want to send me one sooner, please feel free to do so. Kevo, where's everybody going to find you? You can find me on the socials at Kevo Really. That's K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. And uh, Nico, where can the folks find you? You can find me on every social media at Nico Action. I probably have a few more feelings about this episode. I'm going to need to tweet out in the next couple of days. Um, I've literally been waiting to talk about this run. There is a, a very cute man. I see to be clear. I'm sad that it didn't stay a close friendship, but one of the most handsome men I've ever met in my life, a guy named Pete wanted to cover JMS ASM with me literally five years ago. And, um, I almost did it then. That's how much I've been dying to talk about this run. Also, you know, uh, the number of amazing people that have wanted to be a part of the show over the years is such an honor and such a pleasure. So anyone who's never gotten to be a part of a talk on this show, hey, reach out. We'd love to have you. We're always looking to have incredible co-hosts. So, Pete, if you're watching, just um, say hi first. We haven't talked in a few years, but then message me about being on the show. Um, the X-Pack is always pretty open, folks, so we love to hear from you, whether it's in the comments, contributing during a live broadcast, or if you have any suggestions about coverage you want to see, or, you know, we've had a lot of contributors, we make a lot of friends, and we're always looking for new voices, so uh, definitely watch this space, reach out, yeah. Especially if you feel your voice doesn't belong somewhere. If you say to yourself, I'm I'm a unique thing, I'm a minority that nobody would want to hear from, I promise you there's nothing more I want to do than give you a microphone. So I, I can help I, himself. I'm and I'm saying this as somebody who gets like literally like ten to fifteen DMs a week being like, Man, I'd love to be part of your show. And then I'm like, then you're welcome. And they're like, oh, I'm scared of the negative messages. It's tough and it can be scary, but you know what? If Spider-Man can brave it and teach a high school science class, we can do anything. You can check me out at Nico Action and I C O A C T I O N in case I got on my soapbox a little too hard to say it. And yeah. until we come back to talk about those little earthquakes, uh, seeing Pele blow, and of course, none other than Scarlet herself on her path through the violets, uh, we will see you all on the flip dips Be brave, evolve daily, stay strong, and we'll see you. Thank you.